Welcome to the Thought Crimes podcast. On Thought Crimes, we discuss the hardest parts of our behavior to deliver tactics to take control of our behavior and our lives. On this show, we cover burnout, personality, sleep, neuroticism, and more. Once again, I'm joined by Tyler. Tyler, how are you? I am delightful. Ready to talk about the the so much more part of that. Yeah, today is going to be an interesting uh, conversation. Um, We're going to cover a lot of topics I want to start by saying uh, what's in the news right now, this this is going to come out maybe after this is blown up or maybe not, is that Silicon Valley Bank uh, is basically getting closed by regulators. I just want to put that out there. And one of the topics that we're talking about later actually helps alleviate that problem for the scientists. But more on that later. Let's start with uh, some interesting stuff that we've been learning Uh, We've been talking to a lot of life coaches, which might surprise people. Um, uh, Now, my favorite people, and I'm not, if you're listening and you're a life coach, I'm not just trying to brown nose you. Uh, Life coaches are usually very positive, um, really well-intended, and they're all about personal development. So you can get into these sort of virtuous cycle conversations with them, or after you talk to them, you feel super pumped up, even though you're not getting a session. So what... Uh, what are your thoughts on life coaches, Tyler? Why are we talking to life coaches? <laughs> I, think, I think we were probably like our own life coaches for ourselves for years. And like we're essentially trying to do that through our product now. So like we definitely vibe with just their whole mission statement that, that they're working on, right? Is like trying to help people become great at whatever their chosen goal is or whatever their niche type of coaching is. So I just everything about how they're trying to improve themselves and others is it resonates. So I will answer this question in a second, but have you always felt that way towards life coaches? If you're being honest? No, of course not. Um, I I think like I probably thought it was kind of like hocus pocus, maybe not even hocus pocus, but just a bunch of like, uh, just people patting each other on the back. Cause like, I also like didn't really think too positively just of therapists in general. But now I've obviously is I've gained a lot of uh, life experience, maybe wisdom from talking to these kind of people. Like, oh, you guys actually provided some serious value. Um, and it's great, also just great working with them. Yeah, it feels good to work with people that are kind of on your side, helping you improve in some material way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I had the same progression, uh, which is as life goes on, my experience with all sorts of coaches. I worked with an executive coach when I was an executive uh, previously. And, um, you know, everyone has a lot of really unpleasant characteristics that they may not know that they are exposing everyone else in their life to. And uh, facing that on your own can be very, very challenging. Having someone to hold your hand and even better, they have a framework for how to get you mm-hmm. through the, the grief cycle uh, to accepting your own bad behavior so you can fix it is pretty useful. Yeah. Uh, that, that just made me think of something. It's like a, it's like a guided live journaling session where they just, if they're good, which most of them are, they'll, they'll stop you from you like going into your own pit of despair. Like if you just start like trying to pull out of your head, like, who actually am I like based on like how I've been living and you start like writing about all the bad things about yourself. You can go off a cliff real quick and they're like, Nope, let's uh, tourniquet that real quick. Let's actually try to integrate and grow from like the top of the cliff first. And once we figure that out, then we can go a step, step deeper. So, all right, that, that kind of leads into like why we want to talk about life coaching on the podcast. Right. So it's, Mm -hmm. uh, you said most of them are good. Um, and usually experienced life coaches are good almost by definition, right? Because mm-hmm. you, if you're good, you're going to survive in the industry. Um, so what makes a life coach good from your reckoning? Aside from, you know, being able to stop you from getting into a pit of despair, what is a good life coach? Um, someone that, well, I guess there's like a few things, but to start for me is someone that gives you, the chance to take credit for the growth 
So like they're they're just basically great listeners and guides for the conversation you need to have with yourself. And then once you've been able to have that conversation, they don't try to like take the credit from you, which could destroy all of the growth you just had, right? Like, oh, okay, well, it's, they just gave me this template. I didn't do anything. I need to keep going back to them because I'm not actually improved. So, so they, they, they circumvent that logical like pitfall that could happen. From a personality perspective, they're maybe high in tender mindedness and they're maybe high in modesty even. Uh, they, they might not necessarily uh, try to pull the attention to themselves yeah. when it comes to um, the, their customers. And I think it's, it's probably also like a, a swirling of achievement striving and extroversion, like just trying to like be great and altruism so like they're 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 able to feel your win so they don't need to take it from you like nice. them helping you kick butt like makes them feel like they're kicking butt yeah that's absolutely how i felt because uh through our our work we've ended up coaching a lot of people um and uh it feels really really good when you've worked with someone for a while to have them express in their words you know what they've learned and how they have applied it it's just so awesome that's yeah. one of the best moments um, i'm sure it's, it's probably like like when a, a parent sees like their kid go from like a young kid to like maybe a teenager and they're actually like holy crap they were listening and they're now integrated and applying it in their life I'm just so proud. Yeah. I'm very <laughs> proud of people. If I've coached you in the past, I'm very proud of you. Every single one of you guys. Uh, so um, another thing life coaches uh, talk about with me is essentially getting clients and serving clients, right? That's another reason why we're bringing this up, which is um, I get asked, like, how can I onboard clients? How can I filter clients? How can I end up working with people directly in a way that is most effective. So what are your thoughts on that? And I can, I can comment. Yeah. Well. I'll start with an anecdote. It's like, I, I remember doing some research on uh, like therapists getting burnt out by certain types of clients and they, they were getting burnt out because they weren't able to do this pre-filtering. And it turns out some clients are actually like psychopathic um, and narcissistic. So they, they would start, each conversation with my previous therapist failed me because this, this, and this, it's everyone else's fault. Anyway, you, you can, you can get a proxy for that type of behavior from taking something like a personality test. Right. And then you're, you're able to see upfront the level of effort required to get this person from where they are to where they state they want to be. And based on your available time and resources, you can, choose whether or not you want to pair with someone or, or, or maybe pass. Yeah. Right? Especially if you're getting started, you probably want to have that like the match as great as possible. Like what one is that filter? And then the other is how do you just mesh as people, right? Like if you're, if you're stylistically more likely to just like bond with this person, it's going to make everything easier. You're neither of you going to have to feel like you're trying as hard. Absolutely. Pulling out two points. One, uh, implicitly, you have to actually know yourself, um, right? You have to know what kind of person you are. Yeah, with a personality test, right? Plugging, plugging mm -hmm. our uh, work. But it's um, knowing how you work with people, knowing if you're a very accommodating person. And to go back to the cocktail of facets that lead to good life coaches, you're also likely to have a vulnerability there, which is highly altruistic people who are achievement striving, they want to be excellent and they want to help other people. If you get someone who's extremely the opposite of that, they want to take take from you or take your time, it actually affects your efficiency in helping those, those folks. So um, drawing boundaries is not the same for each and every person. Drawing boundaries really depends on the kind of person that you are and whether you've taken an assessment and you know quantitatively or you just know yourself really well, being able to define that in the way that works for you is probably upstream 
of even onboarding clients. If you don't know how you interact with people and how to connect with the people that you're interacting with, you're going to struggle when people fall outside of the, the Goldilocks zone that you're used to, right? And that's actually where you're going to grow as a coach of any kind, right? Whether it's life coaching or even coaching sports, you know, it's like you have to be able to work on the edge of your comfort zone and defining what your comfort zone is, is the first step to knowing what the edge is. Yeah. I mean, and also just as like a client or just a person, if I was looking for a coach, you typically want to see that they were able to do for themselves what they're saying they can do for you. Right. So like they, they, they have a deep self-understanding and have integrated it in a way that their life is successful by them. They're, they're the way they measure it. So like, okay, please give me the same template. Like at least they've, they've proven to themselves that they can do it. Every coach I talk to, I ask them, what's the story behind becoming a coach? So I, I mean, not just, again, not just life coaches, executive coaches, wellness coaches, mindfulness mm -hmm. coaches. I've talked to energy coaches, spiritual coaches, like, and I'm just calling it all life coaching, but mm -hmm. people who coach an individual in some material progressive way. Um, Every single one of them, I ask, what's the story behind coaching? And they kind of like <laughs> get a little nostalgic about a major problem that they had in their mm -hmm. life. Um, and it gets pretty real pretty quickly when I ask that question. And it's very cool to hear different people's uh, journeys through their own personal development to realize that helping other people is their calling in some uh, major way. And it's mm -hmm. always... 100% of the time, well, I was working at some company or I was doing something and then something didn't go as planned or I got laid off or I had a fight or I had a crisis, mental health, personal uh, tragedy. I mean, it gets, mm -hmm. it gets gnarly quickly. But uh, what is so cool to meet people in their journey at this point where they're now at the point of helping others is, all of them were like, and now I want to share that. Yeah. They're um, like the, the embodiment of like the each one teach ones, you know, but they're like, I can teach way more than once. And like, I'm yeah. like that, that, that is their, their calling. And it's a trip, like the part, part, the going back to like filtering part of it is like their, their life experience, like their, their crisis or whatever it is, they probably have a soft spot for that. So they're likely going to try to help people in the thick of the same thing they've been in so they can really help you if you're looking for a coach branding them, themselves that way know that they probably went through something very similar yeah uh, yeah i think it's a good um you know uh it's a good it's a good if you if you've listened to our previous podcast it's a good uh rule of thumb right you're thinking about um matching like a, a guru right like mm -hmm. David Goggins, uh, Tony Robbins, Brene Brown, uh, pick your favorite one. Jay Shetty is another guy. Mm -hmm. um, Deepak Chopra. I, I can keep, I can do this all day. Uh, <laughs> but they uh, fit into a lane. They fit into a category. And the same is going to be true if you're looking for someone to help you, whether it is a therapist or a coach or a whatever, right? Mm -hmm. um, if they've, I mean, this seems almost uh, so obvious, it, like, I wonder if it's worth saying, but maybe someone listening needs to hear this. Look for someone who's gone through a similar experience to you. They will probably be able to help you very specifically. Um, mm -hmm. if, if not, uh, like surgically, uh, yeah. depending on how close they are to the, to your experience. And then the, the scalpel gets sharper, the, the, the layers of similarity you go, right? So like you pick a, not just a generalist life coach, um, but maybe they are and they have like the, the same experience that you're looking to progress through. And then stylistically, they're very similar. It's like, it's almost like they're literally like the voice in your head. It's like you're, you're trying to find yourself in someone else to talk to you in words that you understand. Like, and that's usually why, why it takes like a while to like make progress with someone you're just meeting is because like you're trying to create a, that shared language or shared voice before you can start like speaking to each other in a way that like resonates like at your yeah. core so it's the concept of how they can help their clients better also right so like how you can get more out of a coach and how a coach could basically get more out of you <laughs> okay yeah it's like uh 
if I'm coming to you, I would say like, let's say I want to like get get a six pack before summer, whatever it is. Um, that's the goal. You've done that before, um, so that's good. And then the second piece is is like, I would look for my, like the parts of my voice that I need to hear for that kind of goal pursuit in you. And typically, you like go through by like maybe directly asking if you have that kind of style. But like some people are softer with their approach and like would be like, whoa, you, you can't just like peel back my my soul curtain that quickly, you know? And like that that that's where like the the, the match like the appropriate matching with the like the style of a coach can help you get to where you need as efficiently as you can. Yeah. Um, I may have said this before on the podcast, but it reminds me of this very fun fact I've been telling people, which is there are more millionaires than people with six pack abs. Uh, you mentioned you want to get a six mm -hmm, pack. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and the reason why I think it's funny is I, I say that to people and I'm, I'm always like, why do I, what is it about that that I find so funny and interesting? And I think relevant to the life coaching is uh, there is a mismatch between what people's expectations of the world are with the reality of the world. So there's like a series of like statistical likelihoods that you're navigating when you're working with somebody directly. Mm -hmm. And so it, like, yeah, it's really a low likelihood you're going to uh, just get a six pack sitting on a couch. Like it's not going to magically appear. And if you're, you're telling me I can't shock myself into having abs, <laughs> <laughs> those things are, those things are probably very dangerous. If you're using the ab shockers, I used one <laughs> before because my friend had one and it made me feel sick for like a three days afterwards. Yeah. Um, that's how you get abs. <laughs> that's what they don't tell you is it makes it. <laughs> 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 if you shock your stomach enough, you won't want to eat and then you'll have six packs. Um, yeah. So, but this, um, this idea of priors, uh, the statistical likelihood that something is going to happen in your life. That's a, that's a, if you're into nerdy stuff called a prior. And uh, that goes back to matching somebody who's essentially ahead of you in a journey or has experienced something in a journey. They don't actually have a, uh, they don't have to have had the exact experience that you're having, but if they have the right priors for your situation, meaning mm -hmm. they know like the, the actual thing that you need to do, not what anyone who wants a six pack, which again, right. is very few people. Um, what you need to do, that's what makes them better at uh, helping you do it. Right. So in that regard, the logical conclusion is, for a life coach or any, again, any coach, speaking generally when I say life coach, if they want to be better, they need to be able to improve two things. One, their ability to see what solutions they can actually implement in someone's life. And two, what that person's type is, what kind of person they are, what category they are, um, you know, what lane they're in. When we're talking about the mm -hmm. Deepak Chopra to David Goggins spectrum, those are two completely different lanes very obviously and very transparently um one might be in the category of like spiritual coaching and the other one might be actually just a physical therapist well guess mm -hmm. what those serve different uh people and they are going to be useful for a measurable percentage of the population what allows a life coach to know that well they could understand their clients better and they can understand the kinds of solutions that they they specialize in those are like the two layers i think yeah and then it just the, the, the there's i guess nuance within the layers too is being able to meet someone so say you're in that exercise lane or the david goggins physical therapy lane uh being able to meet someone where they're at and not trying to implement the habits of someone already maintaining the goal like the end goal those are very they're, they're very different solutions that you're trying to implement right it's like if you're saying Oh, I'm a billionaire. Well, what? Like, let me mimic the billionaire's routine. Oh, he wakes up at 4 a.m. because he only needs four hours of sleep. Maybe because he's already 55 and he's not like an 18 year old that actually needs more sleep than that. And then he starts his day with like smoothies made by his personal chef. So he saves time on cooking and like all this stuff that's like almost impossible for you to replicate. Co like, good coaches will like 
find the lane you're in, have experience in that lane, and, and not just also speak to where they currently are as a successful person in that lane. They'll, they'll join you hand in hand where you're going and get you to where you need to be. It reminds me of a quote from Rob McElhenney from Always Sunny in Philadelphia, now famous owner of AFC Wrexham, which is like a Welsh football league, along with Ryan Reynolds. He said, he said in an interview, they're like, how did you get so ripped? So he showed up one episode just completely jacked. It was like a punchline. And mm -hmm. he said, yeah, it's really easy to reproduce. Just hire Captain America's personal trainer, have a private chef cook you meals every single day and spend all of your free time, which you have eight hours a day of exercising. <laughs> He's like, it's very reproducible. I liked how honest he was, though, because a lot of the mm -hmm. time uh, people who have like plastic surgery are like, yeah, all you have to do is eat right. It's like, all right. All right. Yeah. Eat the right plastic into your, your forehead. <laughs> uh, speaking of doing the right thing, let's talk a little bit. Let's shift the conversation about essentially the, yeah. the science of this, right? So um, one thing uh, that I used to be skeptical of, uh, coaching of all kinds, right? When, whatever, wellness coaching. Um, I was skeptical that they were... Um, mostly like what you were talking about it's nice you're, you're having a nice chat with somebody or you're feeling good you're vibing but it's not necessarily actually moving you forward um objectively or measurably or empirically and uh my perspective on that has changed um but we're not going to get into essentially the science of life coaching but let's talk a little bit about the science behind um what we're working on right so that's upstream of of life coaching and let's talk generally actually about personality science for the last mm -hmm. few years. Um, so I wanted to share that, uh, well, a few things. One, if you're not aware of this, um, if you're not familiar with like the scientific community or how scientific funding works or uh, sort of like the science behind our work, we, we maybe we'll publish some stuff on our research, uh, on, our, on our website, but uh, science is super broken. Um, and there are a few stats behind this, um, that I could share, but I think the one that I find most interesting is prices of law, which is how scientific publications work. Um, basically the, the, the volume of publications prices law is this really interesting conserved pattern that shows in an organization, the square root of the number of people in the organization square root produces half of the results of the whole organization. And this is true for entire industries. So mm -hmm. you have a research lab with a hundred people in it, 10 of them are making half of the output. Mm -hmm. And there's a, a kind of a, I would say vicious feedback loop in there too, is that once these, like in terms of re research papers getting produced, once they start getting a name and numbers of citations going up, it gets easier for them to produce something, even if it's technically subpar work than like a, a novice, maybe not, 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 not a novice writer, but like someone that's getting published for the first or third time instead of the 50th time. So it, it, it can suppress new cutting edge research versus someone else's third paper that's incremental to something that was like, foundational when they found it but now it's just like you're just trying to get more papers published yeah so it gets it gets uh pretty twisted and dark after this too so the median publication of a phd student um defending their thesis or even uh in a postdoc is one so that means the average phd is doing one one uh article um regardless of the journey and then how the money flows through this, right? So the vicious cycle of someone who gets a lot of publications out, getting more publications out, they're also, it's kind of like um, the opposite of how, well, I don't know much about this, Tyler, you probably know more about this, but like the NFL draft works, right? Um, because if you, or wait, am I wrong in this in understanding that if you win the Super Bowl, don't you sort of end up getting slightly punished? You like punish the winner. The teams with the worst records get like closer to the first round or like first pick. Okay. So it's the opposite, mm -hmm. right? So, so you're rewarding the, like the worst teams, right? Um, the, the current science funding is like the opposite of, of that. Meaning that the worst teams, like they have the least publications will get the least amount of funding, meaning that they're going to have the least publications, meaning they're going to get the least amount of funding. Mm -hmm. So, which is the definition of bias also right like yeah. you're starting to bias the whole world of science like if this person 
and, and it, may, it may not be like that they're doing bad work. It's just that they're doing probably a type of work. So other types of work might just not be getting as much funding in like new fields that need it versus someone that's like legacy been doing this for 30 years. And again, doing incremental work, but they get $10 million to do it versus like something that is potentially going to be a game changer for an entire industry. But this person hasn't published yet. It, it, yeah. Right. Well, and another weird stat, there are more research scientists than elementary school teachers. Did you know that? That you just rocked my world, yeah. <laughs> so, um, and the vast majority of them are essentially underpaid for their research. And it's because of this, which is that if you can get, and, and this is what happens, if you can get into a lab that's one of the top tier, top dogs, right? So you're, you're playing for the 49ers of labs. Um, you guys keep winning, you're going to keep winning. Um, if you start losing, you start losing funding. It would be like if the NFL just had, it would be like if the NFL was baseball, <laughs> where you have one team just always winning all the time and there's nothing to change the distribution or the structure of funding. Um, and so I want to talk about two other points of, of, of funding in science. One of them is that most early research is funded by national public grants, meaning the government is paying for early research. Most of it. I think it's over 60%. Um, here's what's weird. 75% of clinical trials are paid for by private companies. So there's this really weird thing going on in the market where you've got science done by these brilliant people that are publishing a lot. Now that's great. And they get more grants. And then those labs with more grants can perhaps create an application from their research. They get funded by a private company to prove a point about the thing that they're doing. And then they sell that or license it to the private company. The mm -hmm. private company turns into a multi-billion dollar enterprise. A single drug can be a billion dollar drug, um, right? And we're just talking, I mean, that's just like molecular biology or drug discovery, right? Pharm pharmacological stuff. But- mm -hmm. There are treatments, there are engineering feats coming out of labs that are not like, you know, uh, psychologically, there are going to be clinical trials coming out for things like software that end up turning into private companies. And so um, it makes you wonder a little bit about <laughs> the, like what, where, if you're talking about bias, where the extreme bias enters our entire research body is not going to be just like the pursuit of knowledge for the betterment of humanity. It's going to be the pursuit of knowledge from elite institutions for the eventual consumer product that will create more billionaires out of out of millionaires. Yeah. So there's, dip, I guess, just to try to summarize it is like there's there's classes of incentives guiding research right now, right? It's there's like where can you get free money, and then where can you get even more money later, even if it comes up. And I don't want to be like overly apocalyptic but like even if it comes at the cost of like the the initial like uh rose-colored glasses goal of the the research right it's like you you had you were hoping to save x species right and then like just the the, the only way to actually get money for it was to test the product on that species and cause them harm or something it it, it gets it can get pretty dark pretty quickly but what i guess what are some potential solutions to that right. funding problem? Yeah, well, there's there's layers to it. Um, the reason I was interested in talking about this is two parts. One is because we've been doing research, and um, it does it's not that exciting, or it, and we don't have a lab, um, and we're not doing it formally, so we don't need to fill out any paperwork, um, and we're funding it ourselves. So it <laughs> when we're looking at our data. And looking at how easy it is to kind of start to um, understand people's behavior. If you're not making any claims like, hey, we're not claiming that we're going to become a research lab and go and compete with Harvard's psychology department. Um, hey, maybe we will. <laughs> I was going to say, that'd be pretty cool. Shots fired, Harvard, yeah. psychology department. <laughs> come at me, personality researchers at Harvard. Please come come at me on my podcast. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, you know, we get to learn these amazing insights just because we're creating something for a consuming population. Um, and we also just 
like full disclaimer, obviously we have the intention of commercializing it. Otherwise we would be a nonprofit or maybe we'd work through a lab. I want to talk before I get into the solution to funding science, why we're commercializing what we're doing. Why is it a product? Well, if it's actually helping people, the best way to measure that is if they'll pay for it. So there's this real cool thing you can do if you are a really brilliant scientist and you think that you've got an application in the world rather than going through a privatized funded thing where, by the way, doesn't turn out great for the scientist most of the time unless they're a partner of the commercializing agency. You can start a company and find out if you're right. <laughs> you can start a product and, and it's very cheap and it's getting easier. And I think that this gets to my second point, which is it should be as easy to do science as it is to build software today. Yeah, that, that would be nice. <laughs> it would also be nice to, to, to have some funding to do that and not have to do it only after a 10 hour shift at your day job, um, going into the wee, wee hours of the night and uh, have, having, I guess going back to like the capitalistic side of it, having the market validate that the research is worth doing by maybe having them fund it instead of like these, maybe just like larger government bodies or huge corporations. Yes. Um, right. So, and this gets into, I guess, our third point for the podcast, which is decentralized science. Um, and if yeah. you're- can you, can you give a background on what that is? Sure. So, um, the whole concept of this is that there's a paradigm shift in the scientific community in how research is funded and in how the research outcomes are then distributed to the broader community. And the other component of this is that this decentralization, right? This is a theme that's been happening since I think maybe 2011 uh, with the invention of cryptocurrencies. And don't worry, we're not gonna be talking about cryptocurrencies um, or blockchains or anything technical. Um, but I do want to talk about the decentralization part of this, which is something that we've been really, honestly, on the data side concerned about from the minute we started this uh, sort of this podcast. Uh, before, since before this podcast um, in our organization, we've been worried about essentially how do we make a system that can prevent the corruption of an individual's data and after we're gone from, from whatever, whatever institution we're a part of. So let me talk about the value of decentralization first. The entire premise is who owns what? That's the problem that we're trying to solve. Who owns what and who has a say in what is done with that ownership? Right now, if you go on Facebook and you upload a million photos, Yes, they're your photos. You took them. But technically, Facebook owns them as soon as you are uploading them. They can do whatever they want with those photos. They may have changed their end user license agreement. Please don't sue me, Facebook, if you've changed it. But that was the default. And for most websites, this is, this is the default. You go on a website and you're essentially renting an apartment. You're renting a space on their server to have your data there. Here's the weird part you're furnishing that apartment. And as soon as you furnish it, they own all of the furniture in the apartment. And we're okay with this because we don't have this intuitive understanding of data in the same way we understand our physical stuff. Well, what decentralization's goal, right? And you can criticize the people who are building decentralized systems because there's been so much foul play because of what you can do with these systems. But the goal of the, of the, good players, the the uh, the white hat uh, creators, so to speak, is to make it so that when you rent an apartment, you own the furniture inside of it. You can even buy the apartment. It's just digital. So you can own it. All right. What the hell does that have to do with science? Going back to that brilliant researcher, I actually know personally people who have conducted research at institutions that ended up being commercialized for billions of dollars who did not end up becoming multimillionaires from it. They didn't become rich from it. Um, I don't want to argue about whether it's moral, morally good or bad to become rich, mm -hmm. right? 
But I think it's unfair to say the least that if somebody went in and created so much value that someone can then build on their research, their independent research, a multi-billion dollar enterprise, they should see a commensurate cut of that. And that is essentially what could happen for decentralized science, DSI, because if there is something that the population thinks is value, uh, thinks has value, to your point, Tyler, then they will fund it. And if it's true, the people who fund it get an ownership in it. The people doing the research get a piece of ownership in it. And there are no incentives to hide the research. The incentives are to prove that it's valid. And if you're right, you can get rich, which is yeah. like how all of capitalism works. And that's a piece that we didn't even touch on, right? It's like the some researchers or just makers hiding hiding their brilliant ideas because they, they don't know how to patent it or they're they're scared of maybe not like even if you get it patented, that's like putting a big red flag and like come look at this and you can steal it because I don't have money to defend it if you actually do come take my intellectual property. So what's yes. And people will screw each other over because they will front run, meaning they'll they'll try to finish a, a research study. It, it's called scooping in labs. They'll try to finish research of their colleagues, sometimes in the same lab, so they can beat them to publication. What is the reward of that? Prestige. It's mm -hmm. not even money. That uh, I guess eventually maybe they're after money. I don't know what the incentives are for folks like this. Let's talk about Harvard. Shots fired again at Harvard. <laughs> um, look, I have met people who came out of Harvard's postdoc programs for multiple, from psychology, from uh, some molecular biology labs. I want to name the specific labs where they were in a cutthroat environment trying to quietly and secretly publish their research under a PI who would get their name on the research as like just because they're in the lab um, as quickly as possible because they were concerned that other lab members were going to steal from their lab notebook, publish before them and prove that they did it first. So it's just who got there first. So this gets into the last thing I, I will say about the uh, blockchain side of DSI, but this is a real application of blockchain, which is that if you write data to a blockchain, it is uh, sort of irrefutable when it happened and by who, or if you're British, by whom <laughs> it happened. Uh, if you publish your like lab journal theoretically, yeah, maybe there's someone out there who's going to come in and try to beat you to it. But if the, if if it's tied to a lineage of work where you're co collaborating with people, you have two brilliant people competing that all of a sudden can collaborate and both of them can get rich, right? I don't know why that's the only- Or at uh, least credit. Or that? at least credit. They can get yeah. prestige. They can get what they want working together. You end yeah. up having, at least theoretically, a faster cycle a more public cycle and a more equitable cycle, which is why we're talking a little bit about DSI right now. And then, yeah, an honest cycle, like the the, the history of it's like it's basically like the the lab notebook is like the you have a different date on each page, right? Like all of those could have been tracked and in a ledger that is public and can't can't be like hidden or deleted or burned, right? And just say like, oh, if you steal your lab note mate's notebook copying the notes and then burning their copy that's that's not really possible here yeah well and and the inefficiency of that right like so like like du duplicated lab notebooks and uh people who are good at getting grants excuse me people who are good at getting grants spend i think the figure was uh roughly 50 percent of their time writing grants rather than actually doing science yeah. which is it's an indicator that that's a separate skill yeah and it's also something that could like sink these small, like smaller research uh, labs or just in individuals. Like uh, just on our, our side of things, I was looking into applying to a government grant and was quoted at like, and on the low end, it would take three full-time weeks of work, which is when you have only two or three people on the lab, maybe not something that you can actually, you can spare while trying to either do research or make sales. And then upwards of like, half a year yeah. yeah yeah it's pretty ridiculous um and uh yeah so so now let's talk about the drawbacks of this uh because so far we've only talked about like some of the the best things about it um 
I think one of the one of the things is um, so my my background is I worked in the blockchain space, helped build a blockchain um, and write standards and code and smart contracts and stuff like that, and help developers understand blockchain because I'm one of the uh, crazy idealistic people who are who are interested in the data protection um, and the decentralization of the entire internet, for example, so that I don't, and, and for very selfish reasons, I don't want Facebook owning my digital apartment. <laughs> I don't want mm. Instagram owning all of my images. I don't want TikTok to be able to spy on me. I actually think that's terrible. <laughs> so that's my selfish incentive is like, I own my water bottle. I own my computer, at least until I'm dead. Wouldn't it be nice to own <laughs> all of this stuff? Uh, in in when Peter gestures at his computer. <laughs> so um, getting into some of the challenges, uh, for one, I think everyone is aware, as I started this podcast, Silicon Valley Bank was regulated and closed. Um, I'm sure many of you are aware of what happened with the, the crypto exchange FTX, uh, Sam Bankman-Fried. So we got SVB and SBF. SBF, yeah. Uh, all of the <laughs> SB... Um, yeah, if you've got SB in your um, acronym, maybe start sweating. Um, these financial institutions, like if, if you have an opportunity for someone to take advantage of a population and there's not a good way of regulating it quickly, even if there is, banks are highly regulated, people are going to take advantage of that system. They're going to take advantage of the loophole. And this is something that I hate. I hate it about crypto. I hate it about blockchain. If you're a scammer, I hate you personally. Um, <laughs> Hope you trip. Especially if you're a scammer at Harvard. <laughs> Shots if, fired. if you're a scammer from Harvard, I hope you trip on a rock and stub your toe and you break your nose and you and you fart and it and it poop comes out. Um, <laughs> that's my curse on you, scammers. Um, so, but if you want to, if you're a scammer that wants to get better, reach out to us because we can help you find alternate and healthy paths <laughs> to heal and pair you with a good coach. You pair you with a good coach. So uh, going back to this, though, because there are these red hats in the system, in any system, right? It doesn't matter how theoretically decentralized or far from regulations you can get. Let's say you make money doing science. There are going to be people that are going to lie effectively to make it look like they're doing the thing that we're excited about. And they're actually just capitalizing on the hype. And they will. They will emerge. They're going to launch new currencies, I'm sure. Just wait. There's going to be a bunch of freaking DNA bucks coming out. And, oh, you want to own your own DNA? This is I guarantee you there's going to be people doing this. Probably already are. Now, there's a really good side of owning your own genome. That's really cool. There are going to be people lying about it. And they're going to turn your DNA into NFTs. And they're going to sell it to you. And, you know, some folks will buy that. And then they're going to get scammed. The folks that have done the scam are going to make millions and then run away to whatever, Turks and Caicos or the Bahamas with your money. And I will be shaking my fist at them for the rest of my life. Please go stub your toe. Um, so that's one of the downsides is a lack of regulations. Well, there's re there are good reasons for regulations. Yeah, they, they save us from, I guess, the, the, the worst of ourselves. But then like that, that, they, it's a fine line sometimes. It's like if, if you're, you want certain freedoms, but sometimes you don't know where, like if you're running off into like a dark path, like li like literally, like like no light, where the, like, where the cliff edges, you could you could cause self-harm, which is maybe like opening things up like D-side too quickly without even regulating that to some degree. Yeah. And so maybe regulation is not the, the solution, um, but trust, which is that there is actually a good incentive to trust highly publicized uh, research because it's usually when it's cited a lot, usually, not always, it also means it's reproducible. And uh, this is something that's a double-edged sword with DSI, which is like there's this replication crisis, right? Like tons of research done in the 90s and the 2000s is not reproducible, um, but it actually made it through to like top tier publications and it made it into the, uh, popular knowledge. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, having a completely open platform without 
any kind of trust involved without any kind of organization means that anyone can say something convincing and you end up creating not the DSI platform, but the QAnon 2.0 platform where you've got people with conspiracy theories and poorly structured bad, bad science that sounds interesting and provocative getting people's attention. And there is in fact an incentive if you have any kind of clustering of people, any kind of swarm, there is an incentive to be the loudest and most provocative. This is what's happening to our media right now, not to be too controversial after dumping mm -hmm. on Harvard, <laughs> but the reason the media is so sensational is because it is a market of provocative ideas. Something boring and factual doesn't get your attention. Something tragic and provocative does, the same could be true for science. The fact that it is so boring and there's not a lot of money um, in real pure research is actually a feature uh, for people who are sort of like, you know, like monks <laughs> creating reproducible good science because of their belief system rather than doing it because they want to commercialize their stuff. They're still out there. What would happen to them if all of a sudden you make this marketplace for provocative science that's citizen science, the community-based? It doesn't mean that it needs to be even – it may not even be able to be regulated. It's just something that could emerge, right, and just come out of the ether. Yeah, and then they would be able to afford food to fuel their brains to think while they're doing the research, which would be nice versus like the starving scientist, you know? <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. But yeah, then but I they're... guess an another potential – I guess – Potential pitfall that I'm thinking of the answer is this, to this question is how would you publish these decentralized scientists' work? Are they still going through the same publications? Would you need a centralized DSI publication that's reputable? Like how, how do you over like what's how do you deal with that problem? At this one I could go so deep on, um, and I won't uh, because I've been thinking I've been thinking a lot about this. I think the most interesting pattern is a system of credibility um, and how you implement that is, the, is in the, the, that's the details in which you find the devil, <laughs> um, right? But a system of credibility uh, where you have essentially like a hierarchy, yes, but it is a decentralized hierarchy. So it's not about what institution you're a part of. It's about what cluster within this decentralized hierarchy you are. Somebody really, really smart who's truly an expert in some particular field that's maybe they're a top tier nuclear physics, <clears throat> top tier nuclear physicist. Well, if you have a system that can support essentially the validation that they are who they say they are, right? Maybe their entire lab validates this guy's the expert in the mm -hmm. world on this. They are the one who runs essentially the peer review cluster for nuclear physics. They get to pick, they get to go and they're validated by a group. And then they get to pick who's on a committee for peer review for this particular category. And they have an incentive to over, like basically oversee that it is good peer review because their credibility is tied to the team that they pick. So you're essentially creating, you know, this tournament for people to rather than be sensational, to earn credibility. And so their credibility rises their ownership in the good studies, uh, basically their ownership stake in the, in the uh, wh whatever enterprise, right? They're in a cluster that produces mm -hmm. a lot of um, uh, science. If that ends up being useful, right? So nuclear physicist leads to a new fusion reactor. Their, re their direct lineage to that is visible and public associated with what path it took to get there. A series of studies that went through their peer review process. And sure, it could be sponsored by nature. Like they could pay mm -hmm. into that. They could be like, we want this guy to build the peer review committee. So we're going to actually, we're going to put our dollars behind this. We get money from the government. We're going to fund it. Now, that is like a revolutionary shift in how science works. So I don't know if it's going to happen in the next 5, 10, 20, 50 years. Mm -hmm. But it, to me, if you can solve those very challenging technical problems on the path to that, it would be a better system than what we have today. Yeah. I like that. And then like the skeptic in me was like, my first thought is like, well, that person can become corrupted and suppress certain types of research and then promote other types, but their decisions would be public record. So you could do, like you could run statistics on their decision-making and quickly see if they're becoming corrupted and there should be fail safes where it's like, if certain red flags are raised about like whoever the, the you call them a quote unquote governing uh, scientists. 
um, then you could remove them from that position and then have some some means of raising someone else up. I think you just coined a really cool phrase, uh, which is that we need governing scientists. Um, that's the name for this, right? And publicly, uh, publicly visible governing scientists, because um, and I think we'll we'll end on this because we're running out of time, um, and, and we'll we'll tie everything together, like why these three things. Um, but um, what you just described, uh, suppressing some research and lifting other research up, happens every day in the Harvard psychology department. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the like literally they're like i mean across the nation not just harvard but these pis are in fact making those decisions for their own whatever their whatever their ends that they're seeking are for their own means yeah it's already happening so if that's a risk it's sort of like a system that could be better but its risk is the default scenario it sounds like something that's worth pursuing so, so help us make it happen yeah <laughs> reach out if you're interested in any of this stuff. Um, I'm, uh, I'm very excited about the DSI space going back to, you know, how our personality science came to be. Uh, we had to go through a lot of studies and throw away bad ones that were non-reproducible that their, their data was bad or their methods were bad. Um, those were published. That, that was published research and going all the way back of like life coaches being a part of this, right? This is the foundation to progress where you have a system of sort of irre irrefutable evidence that is really, really sound, that has the correct incentives, going up the stream into outcomes, going up the stream into experts helping people achieve them. So basically we're building a utopia, come join us. <laughs> Oh God, that scares me in another way too. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Yeah, my utopia, the Peter DePalopia topia. It's the best of all. One utopia to rule them all. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, thanks for listening. This has been Thought Crimes by Safnot. Hope you enjoyed this episode. I'll catch you guys in a couple of Wednesdays. I think we publish on Wednesdays. Yeah. Adios. Adios. Adios.